0: This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. It has been uh, quite a week in this uh, neighborhood. Protests in Israel are escalating. Police reaction is also escalating. Uh, there has been terror against Israeli civilians and terror against Palestinians now uh, in Hawara. So Israel kind of feels like it's on overdrive. It's unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. I mean, each day as it's gone by, I've just thought, <sighs> uh, what you know, what next kind of thing. But you're in the center of it. I mean, really at the center of it. It's happening right where you are, where you live. I mean, just talk us through what kind of seven days this has been.
0: You know, it's it's not that Israel has ever been an ordinary country, but things are happening at such a pace and volume and velocity. I mean, I don't remember this kind of intensity, to be honest. I mean, let's just take yesterday, right? Just your, what was supposed to be an ordinary Wednesday. And it starts with police in the center of Tel Aviv using stun grenades against protesters. Later the same day, Finance Minister Bezalos Motric says he thinks Khawara, a Palestinian town, needs to be wiped off the map. An hour later, he says he didn't mean wiped off when he actually said it, right? And this evening ends with a headline, and I read to you, police rescue Sarah Netanyahu as protesters surround a Tel Aviv hair salon. Like, this is, you know, it feels like this... It kind of feels like the only, I think, example I could give you, Jonathan, is those first months of the Trump administration, right? When you're maybe throughout the Trump administration, you're looking at your phone and sort of with disbelief, kind of saying, well, what did he, is he just going to meet Kim Jong-un at the DMZ? What? And then he's like, wait a minute, he's not going to meet the prime minister of Denmark because she won't sell Greenland to him, you know, those kinds of stuff. And this is happening with such really intensity in this, in this country.
1: Yeah, you, you you're used to the word velocity, I thought, is exactly right. Yeah. It just It's coming right at you uh, where you are. And things that would normally be a news story for a week or more, huge things. I mean, I think the, the comments of the finance minister to talk about erasing a place, a Palestinian place, in the West Bank is so shocking and significant. And yet, as you say, the news cycle is now measured in minutes. And that is actually almost, I feel, a technique of this form of sort of nationalist populism. And I do think Netanyahu represents that in the way that Trump did and does. And part of it is almost to leave the press and public sort of punch drunk. There's something coming, then there's something even bigger and something bigger. This thing, by the way, of the surrounding the hair salon, that's also got something very Trumpian in it because it's part comedy, it's part farce, it's ridiculous. And yet when I mentioned it to my... 18-year-old son, nearly 19, and I mentioned to him that this was happening. He said, that sounds like something out of the French Revolution. <laughs> and you sort of knew what he meant, and you know, that there's something sort of Marie Antoinette-ish about the fact that she was having her hair done in the middle of all this turmoil, and that the mob, if this was, you know, 1789, couldn't stomach that and were furious with the wife of the leader apparently saying, you know, it's not quite let them eat cake, but it's saying, you know, my hairdo, it matters even while places are on fire and burning. There's just something epic about what's going on here. And it is that mixture of of sort of farce and tragedy all into, uh, interwoven. I can see why, you know, if you're living there, your head would be spinning after a
0: week yeah. like that. And, and, you know, you you kind of need to say, you, uh, <laughs> obviously, I've been doing this for the evening news for 20 years, I've been around longer than that. I, I have some sort of perspective on on things in this country. I, I remember times of terrible internal strife, maybe the most salient example, the months leading up to the Rabin assassination by an extremist Jew and the months after that. I can remember times of terrible terror attacks uh, against Israelis. I can remember incidents Far between, but still incidents of Jewish terror. But having all of this happen in one week is, is pretty insane. It, it just feels like it kind of, you know, comes at you, you called it punch drunk. And I think that's the feeling. You keep feeling this on your, uh, um, psyche. And it doesn't seem like any of this is calming down in any way soon.
1: Yeah. We're going to hear from someone who has a really long range perspective on this, mm-hmm. the perspective of someone who has fought at the, you know, highest levels for his country. We'll get on to him in a minute. Before we hear from him though, the question, I, I don't mind if I keep asking you this every week, if it becomes a sort of fixture, because I think it's important. All this that's going on, the internal dissension, mm-hmm. you know, I got a call from someone very serious, credible person who's a historian who said, is Israel heading towards a civil war? You know, this is the seriousness that people are thinking. Here's the question I don't mind becoming perennial. Are you seeing any signs in the governing camp, the coalition, of people saying this is getting troubling now? This is worrying. The country is tearing itself apart. Maybe we don't go ahead with these judicial changes that are, have triggered all this. Um, cracks in the coalition, one or two or three people. Who could break and, 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 and halt this thing. You brought it to us week by week when it was happening with the last government, when the wheels were just beginning to come off. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any signs at all of people beginning to tremble at the sight of what this is doing to the country?
0: I don't see a, you know, a, a crack. Because first of all, legislation is going full steam ahead, not breaking for red lights. There have been two members of uh, of the Likud saying, uh, Danny Danone and Yuli Edelstein, by the way, meeting with two members of the other camp and saying, let's maybe just pause and talk for a few weeks. But Netanyahu isn't doing it. He's not pausing, whether because he doesn't want to or because at this point, if he tried to stop, he'd alienate many of his coalition partners. So the short answer to your question is no, I do need you to notice, however, that if the terror wave intensifies, which heaven forbid it does, we all hope it doesn't, but if it does, then what you have is a very far-right government promising Israelis, right, coming to power promising to clamp down on terror. If it doesn't deliver on this, and you finally, and you start to see the unruly parts of the coalition, the Smotrich and the Ben-Gvir saying, this government is weak on terror— then that is where it can start to break. And think about Itamar Ben-Gvir, who has made a career out of coming to places where there are terror attacks and yelling at the minister. Now he's the person being yelled at. And if this continues, I think it might crack at that point. But no, the protesters at this point, they have a very important psychological effect, but they are not, I don't think that is what is breaking the, the plans thus far.
1: That sounds very smart to me. And it makes me think that uh, that, uh, that was an, you know, naive thought I had. Of course, this coalition will break from people who think it's not right wing enough rather than me thinking there might be some sort of closet liberal still there in the Likud ranks. Liberal, by the way, I mean, in the very specific sort of Herut Likud mm-hmm. Melachin Begin sense, rule of law sense yes. that that used to be a strain of thinking within the. Uh, Herut faction that formed the basis of Likud. Wrong of me to say uh, to even imagine that, but that's the something to keep an eye on. Um, uh, we should go to our guest, as I say, somebody who really has a very particular vantage point on this and who has decades of service, military service to his country under his belt. <laughs>
0: Retired Major General Amos Yadlin was the head of Israel's defense intelligence, deputy commander of the Israeli Air Force defense attache to the United States. And we should tell our listeners, quite possibly the only person in the world involved in thwarting two nuclear plans in the Middle East. He was also the executive director for the Institute of National Security Studies, the INSS. And under his leadership, it was named the number one think tank in the Middle East and North Africa. And today he is a senior fellow at the Belfair School for International Studies at Harvard University. Amos, thank you so much for talking to us today.
2: It's a pleasure.
0: It's a pleasure for us. Look, there's so much going on that honestly, it's very hard to know where to begin. But let's um, start with the issue of Palestinian terror. We've seen three Israelis killed this week, 14 in a month. There are also 11 Palestinians killed in the last week. Uh, Most of them were armed. What should Israel be doing differently uh, about this? And are we seeing the beginnings of, of a third intifada, you think?
2: You know, every intifada has its own characteristics. There is no definition for intifada. The first intifada was led from Tunis, and it was basically a popular uprising. The second Intifada was led from Ramallah by Arafat and a new organization uh, called Hamas. And it was done from the territories, A uh, very violent. You spoke about three Israelis killed. 1,500 were killed on the second Intifada. And then we have something like a second and a half Intifada 2016-17. It was characterized by individual. It was not led by organization, a terror organization, and it was mostly with knives. This was not an intifada and it was brought to an end. And now we are seeing basically the same phenomena, individuals, but not with knives, with guns and rifles. And it is much more bloody than the 2016 Let's call it a wave of terror, not intifada yet.
0: So when you look at this government, right, and you see on the one hand... It kind of seems like there's a, there's a tug of war between the responsible adults in the room or, or semi-responsible, right? Netanyahu, Gallant, I'll add in Helti Alevi, the IDF chief of staff, not part of the government, but definitely part of the security echelon. On the other hand, you have people who are quite unruly, people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who every time there's a terror attack, think that there should be collective punishment against the Palestinians. If, heaven forbid, this terror wave continues, how long can this this whole situation hold?
2: Look, we are living with Palestinian terror for decades, and we can't blame this government for the terror. We can blame them for, instead of dealing to take the terror down, that they are putting some fuel on the Palestinian terror and making it even bigger. But this wave of terror has started when Bennett was the prime minister and Lapid was the foreign minister exactly a year ago. And it was started from within Israel and then Jerusalem and then Gaza and then the West Bank. This is exactly the strategy of all those who incite from the outside. This terror wave is based on young generation that don't remember the last intifada. They don't know how much the Palestinian society paid for this intifada. And it's Generation Z not belong to any organization. A very weak and unlegitimate Palestinian authority, Abu Mazel, is declining. A lot of incitement from the outside, from Gaza, from Turkey, from all over the place. A lot of weapon and money, weapon coming from Jordan, coming, unfortunately, from Israel, from criminal gangs, that selling weapon and the Palestinian security apparatus is weak. And pay attention, you need, that in Jenin and in Nablus, they lost their control. On the other hand, you can see that Hebron, Ramallah, Bethlehem, even Kalkilia are still under the PA security apparatus. So this dictates how Israel should behave. But to your question, you're absolutely right. There is two approaches. The extreme right-wingers want to get rid of the PA. They want the PA to collapse. Mm-hmm. If you read Smotrich writing, this is his plan. Yeah. Basically, maybe another Nakba. This is what they want. Those who are more responsible understand that even though the Palestinian Authority is a very problematic organization, they are paying to the terrorists. They are paying to the families of the terrorists. They are also taking Israel to international criminal court. We have a lot of reason not to trust them, but we have an even bigger reason not to take their role as the sovereign government in the Palestinian cities. Israel don't want to take care of education, healthcare, sewage, cleaning the street, so the idea of collapsing the Palestinian authority is wrong and it will take Israel to go back to occupations that we ended in the Area A. So it makes no sense. If you want a strategic long-range goal, you better disengage from the Palestinian the way we did in Gaza. Uh, There is no political support for it today in Israel. There is no partner on the other side. It is too much involved in each other, the settlements in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. We are unable to evacuate half a million, but for the long run, and if you keep the blocks, it's the only solution that I can see that will keep Israel Jewish, democratic, secure, and not less important with the moral apprehend.
1: I'm very glad you've taken us to that place. I just want to go back to this question of terror. We've been talking about Palestinian terror, and I want to ask you something which could be described as Jewish terror. And those are the events in Hawara, this Palestinian town on the West Bank. And military general Yehuda Fuchs has described what happened there as a pogrom. He's the general who uh, oversees the West Bank, and others have used that word pogrom as well. I wonder first, if you accept that description, calling it a pogrom, the burning down of these buildings and so on. And if you do, how that makes you feel? I mean, emotionally, as a Jew and an Israeli, the notion of Jews committing a pogrom in the historic land of Israel.
2: First, I highly denounce what happened in Hawara. It is immoral. It's against the Jewish moral. It's against the Jewish values and it's not practical because you need the security forces to fight with the Palestinian terrorists. You don't want to split them to Palestinian and to uh, Jewish terrorists. And it's very much not deterring. You know, there was a member of Knesset from Ben government mm-hmm. who said that this is very good for the terrorists. And to tell you the truth, it's the other way around. It's not deterring them, it's encouraging them. And unfortunately, we saw another attack after that. But after saying that, that I, I feel bad about it, I never thought that this will happen, you cannot compare the two, because when it happened by the extreme settlers, 99% of the Israelis will denounce it and will say this is immoral. We have to do everything that it will not happen again. When there is a Palestinian terror attack and young children are killed, women are killed, they are celebrating. They are going to the street and give candies to everybody. So I still think that I highly denounce this terror attack and I call it terror attack. But I think when you look at the reaction and the two people, totally different.
1: But so you don't accept the description of it as a pogrom?
2: Um, I think if you read about pogroms in Ukraine, in Russia, it was not end up with 25 houses burned. And by the way, nobody killed. And that's the, also a different. I can call it a pogrom, but I know back in my heart that it's far away from pogrom but I don't accept what the settlers are doing. It's against our values, against our interest.
1: Because I just, sorry, just on this last thing, I just wonder uh, about the confidence of your 99% figure when you said 99% would condemn it. I just don't know whether that's right, given the support that uh, Anitamar Benghvira or Rebetzal smotrich have. And you saw what Smotrich said about Huara, that we should erase that place. I want it erased. I, I don't know whether you're right that 99% of Israelis feel the way you do about what happened there.
2: Okay, maybe 99 I went too far, but 90%. And the problem is that the 10% is in the government. One of them is the finance minister. One of them is the minister for internal security, or they called, I don't know why, national security. And the two of them are not denouncing what should be denounced in the highest term. So at the end of the day, I see what the IDF is doing. I see what the defense minister is saying. And I think this is what most of the Israelis are thinking, even after uh, two brothers were killed in Hawara Mm -hmm. and people are really upset and uh, sad. But this is not the way to, uh, to retaliate. And, as I say, it's not moral and it's not practical, and it's not helping us fighting terror,
0: you know if if we zoom out from this a little bit, almost, right? I mean, the United States being our most most important ally looking at, what is happening in Khawara? Looking at a summit in Aqaba, which, while it's happening between Israelis and Palestinians, trying to lower the tensions, there are ministers in the government denouncing this as it's happening. And, and Jonathan mentioned Smotrich saying you should wipe out Khawara. What does the United States think and feel, and how can we, st- you know, how can we keep them on our side when all this is happening?
2: It's a very, very good question because when Netanyahu took over with his sixth government. He went to the Knesset, mm-hmm. and he uh, said, the highest priorities of my uh, government are stop nuclear Iran, if I can bring the Saudis to join the Abrahamic Accord 2.0. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about a fast train from Kiryat Shmona to Eilat. I don't know why mm-hmm. it's the same level, but this was the three issues. Let's th- take the first two, uh, Iran and Saudi. We cannot accomplish these goals without a lot of cooperation and assistance from the United States. And I think Netanyahu prepared himself to a visit to Washington, speaking with his old, 40 years old friend, uh, President Biden. And I guess he thought that on a one hour meeting, there will be 40 minutes on iran what the two countries are doing if iran continue to enrich to 90% withdraw from the npt or whatever and how we are together preparing a strategic plan operational plan and 20% on how to bring the saudis on board because the saudis will join abrahamic accord not by getting a lot from Israel, they are asking a lot from the U.S. Mm. Okay, and now what is happening? He haven't mentioned the Palestinian in his speech, and he launched an aggressive, fast-moving judicial reform. And this is the two issues that the president of the United States will discuss with him. It will take all the oxygen in the room. What is happening in the West Bank, and what is happening? on the judicial mm-hmm. reform, revolution, whatever you call it. And this is a huge mistake because Netanyahu has an opportunity to start his right-wing government with a right step forward. In Hebrew, mm-hmm. and he
0: don't
2: have this time the need to argue with President Biden about the JCPOA. Biden have said that the JCPOA is dead. So 2015 fight is not needed. Mm -hmm. Then he could have come with some issues that the Americans care about, that are much more important to them than the Middle East and Iran. He could speak about Israel, much more aid to Ukraine, Uh, moving off the fence to help Ukraine, to defend Ukraine against Russian and Iranian attacks. And he could be uh, more cooperative on the issues that the U.S. worried about with China, with technology Mm -hmm. to China. And then if you don't have to fight on Iran, you bring some uh, changing in policy on Ukraine and Russia, you can start on a very positive policy cooperation with the U.S. Instead, his right wingers are setting fire in the West Bank, and I'm not getting any pass for the Palestinian terror. It is there, it is the basic, mm-hmm. but you can deal with it differently. And the judicial reform is leading to a thought in Washington, are we still sharing the same values? Because the unbelievable strong bond between Israel and America is based on the same interests and the same
1: values. Let me just pick up on that, if I can, specifically on the judicial revolution, as I think accurately you described it. Just in your own area, as it were, we're seeing reservists saying that if this does happen as it seems likely to happen, they will refuse duty, refuse to serve. And I, I want to know what sense you have of how widespread that could be. And if it uh, if it is, how worried you are, uh, specifically, I suppose, by reservists in your own area, which is the Air Force, where reservists play such a crucial role. Is this something that troubles you very deeply if people in uniform refuse to serve because of this threat to democracy?
2: Let, let's be preci- more precise. It's not people in uniform. The regular army the regular Mm -hmm. Air Force, those who serve under compulsory service or under a long career service, in uniform, there is no refusing to serve. These people are in the IDF uh, every day and the IDF until now is kept out of the political disagreement. Those who say that they will not uh, come are the reservists. Mm -hmm. And Some of them are pilots, some of them are uh, special forces, and it's going all over the place now. And the reservists, and you have to listen to the music, what they are saying, until we see where this legislation end up, we are freezing ourselves. And if it will be at the end what uh, Minister of Justice Levin is leading, and Israel will not be a democracy, we may not serve because this violate the contract between us and the state. But knowing these people, I must say that I know if siren will go up and there will be a, an external war, they all come. But they are using their position in the Israeli society to say something that they are not the only one. There is the high tech people, there are the, the, the doctors, there are all kinds of Israeli society uh, groups that are telling the government this is unacceptable. And in a country when you have so many reservists, I guess that this is uh, neutral. Do I, ha- I love it? No. I think that as much as we can keep the IDF off this political combat, it is uh, very important. Israel uh, is still under a huge threat. But let me take it even farther. Uh, we all know expert on how we select our uh, judges and how they want to select it politically. And we all know everything about the judicial change. However, nobody have done, and there is no public discussion of the national security circumstances, consequences of this move. And what we see is... Keeping me awake at night. We see that Iran is approaching 90%. We need America, and they are not there because we spoke about it. We see that we want to bring the Saudis. You know, Netanyahu gave Bankville 13 minutes on the Temple Mount. And what happened? They canceled his visit. So, certain visit for Bankville, and Netanyahu is not going to Abu Dhabi. And they so much want to go to Abu Dhabi. And then the unity of the Israeli uh, people. This is how we won all the war. Sense of mission, uh, the same destiny. Look at the the Ukrainians, how they Mm -hmm. defeating the Russians because they have national identity and they have the same goal. And we may have different kind of Spirit in, in case of of a war. And then Israeli deterrence. If you listen to Nasrallah two weeks ago, say...
1: The Hezbollah leader there. Yeah,
2: the Hezbollah leader. Say, we don't have to do anything. Israel will not reach its 80 years independence. So I ask Netanyahu and Gallant and the rest of the government, have you spoke about it? Did you evaluate, analyze where we are going from national security point of view. Forget about the judicial goal and the damage is huge. We also know that the economy is damaged. Investment in Israel, uh, people are moving their money abroad. And in my view, this is why we need as soon as possible to reach an agreement a compromise that, on one hand, correct some of the deficiencies, but on the other hand, will make sure that uh, Israel will keep its separation of power, check and balances, and not let all the power to be at the hand of whoever is the prime minister who control also the Knesset, and now will control uh, the judicial area. This is not democracy. This is dictatorship.
0: You know almost uh, throughout all the years we know each other we've known each other you've always helped me get this sort of perspective and and we should probably tell our listeners who don't know your biography you really were a fighter pilot for 33 years you participated in the attack on uh, the nuclear re- reactor in, in Iraq. You see these things. You see just the week that we've been through with Palestinian terror, with Jewish rampage in Khawara, with these protests accelerating. We had Daniel Kahneman on the uh, podcast a few weeks ago saying he's more worried now than he was during the Yom-, Yom Kippur War. Is that your sentiment as well when you look at everything that has been going on here?
2: You know, uh, Yonit, I have a role in my life. Never panic. Never, on the other hand, be in euphoria, because before Yom Kippur war we were in euphoria. Mm -hmm. Uh, I prefer the slightly paranoid uh, state of mind. (laughs) And then there is no anymore uh, silver bullets, and there are no prophets around. This is my five rules. Mm -hmm. So, no, no panic. I'm not in panic. However, of course, I'm not in euphoria. And the slightly paranoid become a little bit more than slightly. We never been in this situation before. The threat to the state of Israel was existential threat from uh, our enemies that want to destroy the state. I worried that the prime minister, who is well known for being an historian and a son of historian, and I'm not quoting Smotrich, On what he is, he is an historian with a sense of history. He sees himself as the Israeli Churchill that he admired. How can't he see that this is a duplication of how the second temple was destroyed? The Jews fighting each other, burning the stores of food in Jerusalem. One of the party opened the gates of Jerusalem to the Romans. Uh, We are not there. We are not there. We are far from there. But it's a warning light. It's a warning. You know, you fly an airplane and all the lights are are not lighting. And then uh, low uh, oil pressure, something in the engine. And we have some uh, warning lights. And before we do a forced landing, we have to take care of it.
1: You know, from flying aeroplanes, um, so <laughs> the the metaphor is taken uh, and really noted. Amos Yadlin, thank you very much for speaking with us on Unholy. Thank you,
0: thank you, Amos. You know, Amos Yadlin tends to say that he's. Um, He's an optimist. He quotes Shimon Peres as telling him, optimists and pessimists both die the same way, but it's the question how they live. So he calls himself an optimist. Usually, he wasn't entirely optimistic in this conversation that we had today.
1: He really wasn't. I mean, very striking line to say, this is not democracy, it's dictatorship. Mm -hmm. That's very, very strong in answer to your Question uh, about you know the comparison with previous wars, and we heard about you know what the comparison with the Yom Kippur. War. The thing that really struck me was the idea of a man of the military saying, in effect, Israel's number one military asset over the decades has not been this weapon system or that bit of intelligence, but instead a degree of national unity and coherence. And he made the comparison with Ukraine. That when all is said and done, you can have all the hardware in the world, all the brilliant strategy and high tech, but if the country itself is not united with that particular national spirit that Israel clearly, in his view, always did have, then that poses a a problem for its security. And that was, I thought, a, a profound warning to hear from somebody who uh, you know fought with such distinction for his country um, and. I don't know what it's going to take, you know, is what I found myself thinking. You, you know, you've had the high-tech sector, you've got the military sector, all saying don't do this. Um, it was very, very powerful to hear it from him.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, well, this was a, a chalk filled episode, but we can't end it without giving out awards. So how shall we begin?
1: Um, I will uncharacteristically
0: we, do the Mensch Award this time, maybe?
1: Why don't you do the Mensch Award first? Yeah.
0: Why don't you just suggest something I just suggested? So anyway, uh, we're doing the Mench Award, (laughs) and I'm doing it in your turf, because this story made headlines in Israel as well and was followed really closely here. It's Luciana Berger, who was... I don't need to tell you. One of the Jewish uh, Labour MPs who left Labour under Jeremy Corbyn actually um, really hounded out by anti-Semitism. She said she felt it impossible to stay. Now she rejoined the Labour Party and she said that the party made such efforts to root out the problem of anti-Semitism that she felt it's now a safe place and she can return. I'll allow you to say something about this as well.
1: She was regarded very much here as something of a kind of warrior for the for her stance on this, really took a lot of courage, bravery. Won huge admiration in the British Jewish community and beyond. And so, this is a uh, a sort of big moment and very important for Labour that she feels able to return.
0: I agree, but you should do the chutzpah this uh, week, sir. I
1: should. I absolutely should. Author of a new book called "The Parrots Go Bananas," a children's book. And so we we love children's books here, mm-hmm. and the message of the book, written for kids between the ages of four and twelve, is the dangers of spreading lies. The book is called "The Parrots Go Bananas." You think what's wrong with that? That should be a Mensch winner, surely. Except the author of this book is Sean Spicer, former White House <laughs> press secretary, uh, for one Donald J. Trump. Sean Spicer, the man who became famous the world over infamous. for insisting, <laughs> infamous, for insisting that the crowds at the inauguration of Donald Trump were bigger than the crowds of Barack Obama, even though the photographic evidence that you can see with your own eyes said the opposite. For Sean Spicer now to be teaching young children on it, uh, de- uh, stories with the message and the moral that it is bad to spread lies strikes me as a worthy winner.
0: <laughs> What's the, the man knows what truth is and what lies are. Who knows better than he does? Um, it's yes, a good story. We, should be, we should be grateful for the <laughs> repenting
1: sinner, I suppose. But yeah, it's a, it's a choice uh,
0: one. You know how Oscar Wilde used to say books are they're either badly written or, or well-written. They're not moral or immoral. So let's read the book and see if it's good. Um, okay, so we shall say our thank yous, right? Episode 96 is um, now winding up. We shall say a thank yous to Gaia Glazer Rom'atik. Omer Prima, Tanya Irbasha.
1: We should and of course if you've enjoyed it do remember to rate review and do all the rest on uh, apple podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts facebook unholy Podcasts, we're there instagram the same i'll see you next week
0: this podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented checkpoint you deserve the best security